This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. We are all consumers of media. Christians who gather weekly to listen to the authoritative proclamation of God's Word and to receive the ministry of the Holy Sacraments are participants in the divinely ordained media, the means of grace. We are participants in other kinds of media as well, such as electronic media and print media. Indeed, we are bombarded with media from all sides, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Or so it seems. Pastor Greg Reynolds has been thinking about these questions for a number of years, and he's on campus this week to give us the annual Dendulk Lectures, and he's in studio with us today. He's a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He earned his demon degree here at Westminster Seminary, California, in 2001. He's been a pastor since 1980, and presently he is pastor of the OPC Congregation in Manchester, New Hampshire. He is also author of The Word is Worth a Thousand Pictures. Hi, Greg, and welcome to office hours. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. The first question I have is, how do we pronounce the name of your congregation? You'll notice in the introduction, I didn't try, so you do it for us. That's a wise thing because almost no one gets that the first time. It's Amaskeg is a typical Indian name from the area. It may have been Namaskeg, and it means to catch or he who catches little fish. And it comes from a small tribe of the Abnaki that were around the Amaskeg Falls, which is a big falls in the river that runs through Manchester. It's about a mile and a half from where our church building is, and we thought that would be a wonderful kind of a byline for doing missions and presenting what we were about when we began the church. And you're doing a little fishing yourself of a sort. Yes, we are. Okay, great. Thank you. Now, you are here talking to us about ministry, and you're talking to us about the relationship between ministry and media. You are a student, and you've written on media ecology, and particularly as it relates to preaching and ministry. What is media ecology? Oh, that's an excellent question, and I know my friend T. David Gordon has always thought that was an ugly term. That's one of the few things I don't agree with him on, because I think it nicely sums up the idea of being good stewards of media. It's not a term that any of us have invented, and I believe that Marshall McLuhan was the first one to come up with it because he believed that we needed to learn how to navigate the electronic environment, which is pervasive, and we're so much in it that we can't recognize it unless we stop to intentionally learn the art of stewardship. Of course, the Greek word is one that we're familiar with in the church and in the Greek New Testament because it refers refers to the household, and so the household of God. Also, Joseph was, in the secular world, a steward of Pharaoh's house, and so he managed all the affairs of the house, and especially Christians need to manage their use of media, especially the electronic media, and ministers especially need to understand the environment of media that they're working in. How does media ecology relate then specifically to the act of preaching a sermon? Preaching is itself a medium, 
And so what are you asking preachers to do? Yes, well, you said it well in the introduction that the media of the means of grace, those are the God-given media through which God communicates himself, his word, his redemption in Jesus Christ to us. And the preacher, of course, understands that this is not a man-made medium as are the electronic media, but that it's rather the medium that God has chosen him to cultivate through which to personally and pastorally communicate his word to his church. What does a a form of communication say about a culture? One of the points you make early on in your book is that we learn something about a culture from the way that it communicates. Well, a good example would be in modern culture, if we look at the communication that happens generally out there in the mall or in the restaurant, it's very visually oriented and it's very commercially oriented. And so it would tell us that we're really interested in having lots of things, that we're really interested in the immediacy of the visual media and its impact on us emotionally, that we're not as interested in careful thinking and ideas. On the other hand, if you take literary culture, the reading of books and also preaching culture, oral culture, you see that ideas are at the center, communicating ideas are at the center of a culture that values those highly. I'm increasingly interested in what seems to me to be declining literacy. Talk about the connection between the growing influence of the visual in our culture as a medium of communication and its relationship to the decline of literacy. Yes, well, literacy, if you compare reading a book to watching a movie or watching television or watching a program on the Internet, the visual media continue to come at you and draw you into its environment. And you don't get a chance, and especially in advertising, it's purposeful that you don't get a chance to stop and think about what is being communicated. Whereas with literature, if you're reading a book, you have to take the time to concentrate. And when you come upon something that you need to think about, you stop, you can reflect on it, you can turn pages backwards, look at the index and so forth. So the very nature of literary media, whether it's a book or a scroll, is that it concentrates the mind for thought. And the visual is more emotive and affective. My perception is that our culture is turning more and more to the emotive and the affective, that which moves us emotionally. The most effective advertising is typically that which moves the emotions rather than the intellect. Every newscast ends with what they sometimes call a kicker, which is usually a feel-good story, which is emotive and sort of softens the blow of all the bad news they've been delivering for the last 30 minutes. Yes, the visual media and images particularly, they cultivate an emotion of response. And I think a lot of this grew out of advertising, where what you want people to do is you really want to grab them with sort of half-truths about what the product really is, and then you want to get them to buy. You want to make the clothes with them. So I remember back when we were in New Rochelle, our daughter was captivated by this ad for Squirt Squirt the Animals. It was this little, like a boat that had little squirt guns and animals. Well, they made it look wonderful on television, and very full of action and interest. And so we went and bought it. And within one day, she was utterly bored with it. And so emotions got the better of all of us. And
And if you'd given her a cardboard box, she might still be playing with that. Yeah. That's right. In fact, that's probably what she spent more time playing with after Christmas was over. Because the box could be at one moment something, and then at another moment it's something else because it involves the imagination and creativity and all of that. And that's why we still have a huge bucket of Legos for our grandchildren because that's what we tended then to buy more of because it cultivates the imagination. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. In your book, you say that media forms us. You comment on that. And you are a media critic. I can hear it now as we're talking. I can see you practicing the art of criticism. And when I say criticism, I don't mean just being negative, but as you already suggested, stepping outside and looking back with a certain measure of objectivity and asking questions like, what is really going on here? So as a critic, how does media form us? And what does that mean to be formed by media? It's a profound question question, really, which I think all the best media ecologists have considered in some detail. One thing I want to be careful of is not to give the impression that I think that we, in our essential human natures, including being made in the image of God and being fallen, can be changed by the media in any essential way. But what it does is it changes our perspectives. It changes the ways in which we relate to other human beings and the ways in which we interact with our culture generally, even with the natural world, and it forms our opinions. If we're watching television and subjected to massive amounts of advertising, we're going to tend to be uh, consumer-oriented and think that, like a friend of mine once crudely said, he's not a Christian, that whoever gets the most toys wins. And I thought, only until they die. (laughs) And winning in this life only in a very superficial way. Exactly. We don't have time to work through everything because the the book is quite comprehensive. But I was interested in your analysis of the way the Old Testament prophets criticized a certain media in their day. Maybe you can explain that a little bit for us. Yes. In fact, I begin the book with a brief survey of Old and New Testaments on the nature of idolatry. And I believe that that's really the most important concept in the Bible for cultural criticisms, criticism of all kinds. And so what we have today in the electronic world is simply a very sophisticated and complex way of promoting idolatry. Now, that's if you're an idolater. We're obviously using media here and electronic media in a way that is promoting the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the idolatry takes many forms throughout history, and in our own day, we can see that one example of what I would call a major God in the pantheon of modernity would be efficiency. And in fact, Jacques Ellul, in his book, The Technological Society, when he defines technique, he defines it in a very broad way to say that it is the activity of imposing efficiency on every area of human life. And what it does, of course, is it makes us, instead of being interested in good, it makes us interested in simply doing things efficiently. And it almost rises in an idolatry way above good and evil. After Descartes and after the 17th century, we became increasingly mechanized. Our culture became mechanized, and it transformed the way we looked at people. Before the Industrial Age, we didn't use factories, really. And since the Industrial Age, we've come to think of a lot of things in terms of factories, education and media and other things. Elul is very stimulating. And what is the name of the title? Yes, Understanding Jacques Ellul by three faculty members from Wheaton College, Jeffrey P. Greenman, Reed 
Mercer Shushard and Noah Tolley or Tolley. And it's very interesting to me and important that the son of Eric McLuhan, who is himself a noted but not as famous media scholar, Eric McLuhan, has written a blurb for the book. It's really, I think, a significant book, and I'm hoping to do more Elul research and study in the near future. You are a Vantillian. You are a presuppositionalist, and that involves a variety of commitments, but it produces a particular way of defending the faith that rather than getting to Christianity from something else begins with Christianity and begins with a critique of unbelieving thought and then an explanation of the virtues of the Christian faith. The faith that Van Til wanted to defend is not something else than Christianity, but it is Christianity as it comes to us in Scripture. What's the value of a Vantillian apologetic for critiquing culture and media? Yes, it's a huge value. And in fact, I started the book with idolatry as a biblical way of critiquing culture precisely because I'm a Vantillian. Of course, Vantill himself was simply a Reformed theologian and based his apologetics very clearly on the Bible. So in tomorrow's lecture, I will make the point that it is only the ontological trinity that forms the basis for communication, that human communication cannot be explained on any other basis. And I'll give an example of someone who tries to, which in turn, a media scholar named Carey, C-A-R-E, why. He defines human communication as something that is really invented by humans, which is an example of another great Vantillian point, and that is that in our unbelief, we are always in the business of suppressing the knowledge of God from Romans 1. And so I found those two ideas to be very important in thinking about not only media ecology, but how we might use this in evangelism. If we're going to think about communication biblically, we need to start with God. In the beginning, God is the biblical picture. God is not made in our image, contrary to the way that lots of modern, maybe most modern thinkers have wanted us to think. But according to Scripture, we're made in God's image. So we communicate, and we are creatures able to communicate because there is communication within the persons of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are in fellowship and in communication with one another, not communication or sharing of their properties necessarily, but in fellowship with one another. Is that what you're intending to say? Oh, exactly, and I'll say that. You gave the lecture for tomorrow because that's uh, that's how I'm going to begin. And that's a great Augustinian piece of theology that I really have enjoyed learning about because of the very nature of God being the one after whose image we have been created. And human language, of course, is what distinguishes the imago dei from all other created beings. I think that God creating us along with all the rest of creation by the word of his power tells you that the word, and especially the oral word. I see the written word as being an adjunct to the oral word, and the oral word then is fundamental to the very nature of God as he relates to his creatures in covenant. And so we then, imaging him, are verbal creatures. And I remember as a counterculture type and deeply immersed in Eastern religions that the goal of all the Eastern religions really is to transcend verbal reality, to transcend human language. And as a Christian It was a great revelation and relief, especially as an amateur poet, to find that no, in fact, it is the essence of being made in his image and renewed in his image that we are verbal creatures. 
I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 480 8474 Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. One of the first things that we know that God said to us is you may eat from any of the trees in the garden except for one. As you say, we are covenantal creatures. God is a covenant-making God. He made a covenant of works with us in which He said, in effect, do this and live or transgress this law and die. So our reality is circumscribed by the Word of God, and John 1 picks that up as well, doesn't he? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's a very interesting point. When you say countercultural, I'm guessing you mean hippie. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> countercultural just sounds so much more sophisticated. <laughs> You were doing Occupy Wall Street before Occupy Wall Street. That's, That's what right, that and so I've been a severe critic of that recent movement as a result. Sure, <laughs> and and so it's interesting that there was a, an intentional desire to overcome the circumscription, the boundaries created by divine speech. Yes. In fact, that's an essential expression of our rebellion against God. And it was wonderful to realize as a new Christian that now I could begin to understand my own nature, understand how I needed to be changed through my redemption, but also how to understand how I was created in God's image. Which leads us to the next question. One of the points that you raise is the built-in inherent bias towards Gnosticism in electronic media. I think you're onto something there, but can you tease that out for us just a little bit? The nature of electronic media, when we think of the ways that it mediates reality through screens and through electronic hard drive software apps and all the rest of it, is that it draws us away from the actual world into this virtual world. You'll see something like the Heaven's Gate cult way back, I think this was in the 90s, where the goal of this cult in committing group suicide was that they were somehow going to download themselves or upload themselves into their website. And of course, it never happened because they were denying the essential nature of what it means to be human and to be in bodies, incarnated with a small I. It was a failed attempt to digitize themselves, which was grounded in idolatry because they were seeking a kind of immortality through sort of eternal digital existence, in which case they had completely confused the boundary between the real and the digital. Yes. And I think there's also, in that form of idolatry, is to try to become God that is the god of their own imagining, which in Eastern mysticism is a kind of the, the silent one or some vague sense of ultimate unity that has no verbal reality or bodily reality to it. There is a generation now arising who don't know any other existence than or, or world 
than a world that includes the World Wide Web. You and I can remember when there was no web, when if you wanted to communicate with someone, you picked up a phone and you dialed something, dialed numbers. Or if you wanted to communicate with somebody, you put a pen to paper and wrote things down and stuffed it in an envelope and gave it to someone and waited two or three weeks for a response that might not ever come. And the generation that's growing up now assumes that we're all wired to one another constantly. And for them, that is reality. And I'm sure you have sub 30s in your congregation. So give us a little account of why that's not the most real reality, that they're minded to assume that their digital existence is as real as anything else or perhaps more real. Well, fundamental to our belief in the incarnation of the eternal Son in the person of Jesus Christ is the fact that he came in human nature and he related directly to his people through speech and his personal presence. And he even, in the Lord's Supper each week, I'm always struck by the fact that he says that I'm not going to do this with you until I come again, essentially. Which means that he puts tremendous value on his personal presence. And now even his personal presence is mediated through the sacraments and through the Word and in the power of his Spirit and through prayer. In the congregation, I try to emphasize the importance, therefore, of personal presence in my preaching, that a preacher who is on the internet or the television can't have any personal involvement in the lives of his people, although they oftentimes, I think, dishonestly represent themselves as having an interest, especially if you'll send a donation, and therefore to make sure that they try to craft their lives and order their lives in such a way that it will promote personal presence, that they value that over over the electronic media and that they use electronic media in ways that will augment and enhance their personal presence with people and in the worship of God rather than take away from it. So you're not a Luddite. Whenever anyone criticizes electronic media, the next thing you hear is, well, then you must be a Luddite. That's right. It's interesting. You mentioned this earlier, Scott, about the nature of criticism. I've been doing a little bit of study on criticism in terms of literary and other cultural criticism. And it's interesting that even some secular critics and someone, I don't know his religious perspective, but Joseph Epstein recently has written something about the fact that there's just no real criticism going on because no one will tolerate it. You can't say anything bad about anything else. And so I think given that cultural mentality, the minute you raise questions about or ask people to think critically about it, they think you're being mean-spirited or blind to modern realities, unwilling to be relevant or up-to-date, which, of course, is a complete misunderstanding of what a real critic is trying to do. There's a difference between criticism and hating. The first thing that particularly people under 30 will say is, well, you're a hater, which completely obliterates any distinction between saying, well, this is useful, this is helpful, but this is not useful this is not helpful. And you end up lumping everything together. And it's, I guess, appropriately in some ways, it becomes a binary operation. Here we are making a digital recording and digital is just a way of saying a series of zeros and ones. And uh, maybe young people are being catechized into zeros and ones. That's a, a very poignant observation. And it also creates a very dangerous climate of at least cultural persecution, if not uh, other kinds of persecution, such as we see in places like Egypt and the Sudan. But here, I'm always careful if I don't know someone personally and that they already know that I love them. If I disagree with them, I will often add the footnote that because I disagree with you, it does not mean that I dislike you. So please understand that. 
that. I'm simply trying to cultivate a good understanding of whatever it is that we're talking about. I appreciate that. That's helpful. How does electronic media feed narcissism? People have commented on that relative to Facebook and other forms of social media. First of all, what's narcissism and how does e-media feed that? Narcissism, of course, comes from the ancient myth about Narcissus, who fell in love with his own image in the water in a reflection. Christopher Lash actually wrote one of the most powerful books on that subject, which was The Culture of Narcissism. And in fact, I used that extensively in my research uh, for the book that I wrote on media. So narcissism then is a focus on the self. And in an odd way, it's almost, it's similar to looking at a screen because what you get is it's all about you. It's about what you're getting out of what you're you're looking at, what you're reading, what you're searching for, and especially I think it's exacerbated by the social media. Maybe not so much in something like LinkedIn, but especially the purely social media where you get into the business of building a circle of friends and then it becomes competitive. Who has the most friends? And then you are tempted to reinvent yourself in order to make yourself more popular. And so it simply intensifies the already sinful propensity that we have to be self focused. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You create a false self that isn't really you. It's your online you, which then creates a kind of schizophrenia. You have a sort of a real you that gets up and goes to work and lives ordinary life. And then you have your virtual you, which is this idealized version of yourself that you present to the world. And that's really a violation in some respects of the ninth commandment. It's a misrepresentation of things. Yes, indeed it is, Scott. And I forgot to bring all the cartoons that I have on media ecology. And one of them that I collected back in the 90s shows a person sitting at a computer and a dog sitting next to them. And the person says to the dog, don't worry, on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. <laughs> it's a, sort of a, a poignant way of summing up what we were just talking about. I think the other thing about the electronic media that is so important is that it tends to reduce us to just horizontal reality to what we know and experience. And it's much like what Postman says about television preaching is that the whole focus of it is on the face of the preacher, and thus it promotes an anthropocentric view of worship. And really, it makes true worship, which is theocentric by its very nature, in its essence, impossible. I had the interesting experience of being in the Crystal Cathedral back when it was still under the control of the Schulers and seeing Bob Schuler climb into the pulpit and deliver a sermon. So we're watching him in living time and space. And at the same time, there is a large screen which reflects what the camera is showing. And there was a real discontinuity between the reality that was being mediated to us on the screen which sort of cut off certain things and created one impression of Dr. Schuler, And then there was the reality that we could see with our eyes. For example, he had a few note cards. Not that he, once he got rolling, that he really needed them. He's a very gifted speaker. But there was no visual clue on the screen that he had anything like note cards. Everything he was saying just seemed to flow magically. So he had two different versions of reality being mediated to us simultaneously. And that was several years ago, and I still haven't fully gotten over that experience. <laughs> I had a similar experience long before I really began to study media ecology in a little Baptist church where we lived when we were first married, briefly getting ready to come to seminary. No Reformed churches in the area. 
And so we, we tried going there for a while, and the pastor did a television show. As we went to worship the first time, we realized that he was preaching to the television, not to us. And it was very dismaying. It, it really troubled us. The man himself was a real Christian, a sincere man, I think had no idea that it was a problem what he was doing. But it's there in the nature of that medium. The congregation became an audience instead of a congregation. Exactly. Two more things. You make a comment about the liabilities of distance education. And sometimes around here we use the slogan, face-to-face is best. Give us a defense of face-to-face education, and particularly seminary education. Yes, well, similar to what you were saying about Schuler, seeing him in the pulpit, you see a much bigger picture of a human being when you relate to them face to face. And I would say, you know, my son once asked me a similar question and sort of challenging me and saying, you can't really rationally explain and define this. And I said, well, maybe that's at least one aspect of the reality of it, that there's something so mysterious. Even our talking here is a mysterious reality. And we can say some important things about it, but we can't fully define it. And so I would say that the reality of the presence of a professor in relationship to his students is Found, I don't think can be even fully aware of what we are taking away when we think that distance education is going to be the same kind of education. Of course, more specifically, you can see how a man lives. And I think that good professors have students in their home. They may even be part of the same church. They get to see the professor preach. They get to see him minister to people with real needs. They hopefully see real humility in him. They also see his flaws. And so as they go into the ministry, they realize they don't have to be perfect people, but they need to be only people that have the grace of the Lord and Jesus Christ at the center of their ministries. Seminary is an internship as much as an accumulation of information. I worry sometimes with the distance ed movement that profs will be reduced to sort of max headroom figures talking head on a screen somewhere. Yes, I think that reduction is the biggest danger. It, it is not mere information that we're gathering And the idea of wisdom is something that is passed on with human interaction that takes place in the classroom, but it also goes beyond the classroom. And I think the idea of it being an internship is exactly the right understanding of a seminary where the seed of ministry is being planted. That's the very definition of the word. You've called yourself countercultural, at least you participated in the counterculture in another part of your life. Preaching is, in our age now, a face-to-face, personal or interpersonal mode of communication that is becoming increasingly countercultural. So in some ways, maybe now you are even more countercultural in a more profound way than you were before. Give us some encouragement, especially for pastors who are listening, that they need to persevere and appreciate the value of being countercultural in their, as you say, authoritative monologue. Yes. In fact, the reason that I began the study here back in 1990 on homiletics and electronic media is that I had a sense around me in the first 10 years of ministry, and especially knowing some liberal and broadly evangelical pastors in New Rochelle back in that day, that they were really apologetic about preaching, that they were being discouraged by the cultural pressure that preaching was simply a very ordinary way of communicating and not a very effective way. And so they had to use back then the overhead projector 
character and whatever else, maybe drama or something to make it more interesting. So in looking at preaching, then I went back to the Bible and said, what does the Bible have to say about the power of preaching, which is a form, a particular form of oral speech, of oral proclamation and persuasion? And so I would encourage people, first of all, to look at the Bible and say, this is what God has called you to do. And secondly, that because God has called you to do it, we need to, by faith, trust that it is the primary means that by which he saves people and edifies and builds up his church. Now, Along with that, I think that there's a distinction. In Paul's day, there was a kind of preaching that was we can generally call persuasion that he distinguished, particularly in the Corinthian letters, from what he was doing, which they were culturally opposed to, which is that he was simply proclaiming the gospel. Recently, I've had some people say, well, do we not persuade people as preachers? And of course we do. The difference is we don't get the form and content of our persuasion from the audience or the culture. We get it from the Bible because we are those announcing only what the king has said. And therefore, of course, part of what the king says is repent, believe the gospel, refrain from certain sins, and cultivate the virtues of Jesus Christ revealed in the commandments of God. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.